Welcome to the Bike Rumor Podcast, where we spin off from our usual tech coverage to pick the brains of the people behind the brands. If you want to hear how bikes and components go from ideas to the things we ride, this is the cycling podcast you've been waiting for. Please welcome your hosts, Tyler and Watts. Hi, y'all. Welcome to the Bike Rumor Podcast, where Tyler gives me an interview an hour before we start recording. And I try to listen to it, and then we start talking about it. <laughs> or, or more accurately, I give you an interview sometimes two weeks before we're supposed okay. to talk about it, and you listen to it <laughs> an hour before we're going to talk about true. it. <laughs> this is true. Um, what are we talking about this week? Well, so when I was out in Bellingham for the Shimano XTSLX launch, I pulled aside the mountain bike product manager, Nick Murdick, who is just an awesome, awesome dude, and just grilled him about not just the group, but I put out a call for questions ahead of time on social, and we got some great questions from our readers. So we're going to cut right to it because the stuff that you and I want to talk about is probably better if we talk about it after the interview, but... I really, I, I think there's so many different things. So we talk about way more than just the new XT and SLX groups. Uh, Nick gives us an absolute masterclass in how to lube your chain. And it's equal parts that entertaining and like just fascinating about all the different things you wouldn't ever guess about lubing your chain. That was my favorite part. Uh, I think it was mine too. Um, and then, so we talk a little bit about GRX and this is when we start diving into reader questions. People were asking about, you know, what's the GRX compatibility with flat bar shifters. So he talks a, bit, a little bit about how you can mix and match that, how, you know, what's next beyond 12 speed wide range, or, you know, could we revert to just a nine speed wide range and simplify things? There's talk about six bolt freezer rotors and a lot more. So Get through this interview. It's awesome. You're going to love it. And then uh, Watson and I will catch up with you after. So, Nick, thanks for coming on the Bike Rumor Show. Uh, yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for coming out. Yeah, it's actually the second time I've had you on, except the first time was video. Mm-hmm. And uh, we basically just sat on the couch. It was not a super exciting video, but there were some good questions. And that was at the XTR launch. Now we are sitting here, 2019, at the new XT and SLX 12-speed launch. So I figured we'd start with that, and then I had sent out, kind of put it out on social that we'd be talking, see if we got some questions. We got a bunch in, and we'll go through those in a minute. So it kind of covers a lot of stuff beyond the new XT group, but there were definitely a lot of people asking, hey, when's 12-speed XT coming? So here it is. Yeah, um, real soon. <laughs> yeah, and real soon. And that's, that's for me, that was, you know, like, yeah, the group was awesome. We've been riding it for the past couple of days in Bellingham. I think what is probably going to be most impressive for a lot of people is the fact that it's actually going to be available just a couple of weeks after it goes live. For sure, yeah. Uh, we're pretty excited, I can I tell you that. <laughs> um, yeah, it was a big effort, and I mean, uh, it was uh, it was super disappointing for XTR to be this whole planned, uh, like, uh, yeah, trying to give people what they wanted, right? That uh, uh, pe- bike riders had been telling us very clearly what they wanted out of a mountain bike drivetrain group set, and uh, and we hadn't been delivering it. So we wanted to to bring it to the people and uh, and produce it uh, reliably in consistency with really high quality, like the Shimano hallmarks. Um, and uh, unfortunately, holding onto those hallmark hallmarks means delaying the initial delivery sometimes when things start to go wrong. Um, so we really uh, threw all the resources that we had at uh, at the mountain bike uh, drivetrains this time, and 
that meant two things, right? It meant doing SLX and XT at the same time, and it meant absolutely positively no delays with XT. And uh, and I can tell you that any time there was a hurdle that came up, it just meant, okay, what does it take to get this out on time? Because there is not going to be a delay. Uh, so if it meant resource reallocation or rethinking something quickly, then uh, then that's exactly what we did. And uh, uh, yeah, so we're we're quite on track and. Um, I don't know exactly when this is going to go live, but basically the, uh, the idea is that two weeks after uh, the XT group goes public, it'll be available in bike shops across the world. That's right? awesome. So, and you guys already have stock in your warehouse, so it's uh, not like you're just saying that. You're actually sitting on parts ready to ship them, Exactly. Right? If, just about everything, right? Like if it was all in stock, then we could go ahead and start shipping it, and we would have talked about it a little while ago. <laughs> so we're, we are waiting on like the last little bit right now with, uh, with still a week to go before the embargo. Um, but, uh, but it looks good. Uh, we had the products here for the media camp, um, so the, the full production versions are being produced now and should ship from Japan in just a, a day or two and be on track to be in our warehouse in time. So, right. uh, yeah, that global coordinated start sale date has been uh, something that we've been working for for uh, for several months, way well back into last year. And uh, uh, I'm glad to see that it's actually coming together yeah yeah me too i think everybody's going to be super stoked on it too and, and stoked that they can actually buy it what was I, I know there were some issues with the silence hub with xtr and that the the cranks as well were a bit of the delay what was it about um xt you did differently that let you guys get this out on time uh well the the new technology is always the hardest thing to produce so xt traditionally doesn't have like delivery issues so we knew that kind of going in um but uh uh really it's kind of getting the the designs done in time so that the quality control team has enough time to make sure that everything is going to be durable enough for uh for actual mountain bike use right so um giving ourselves enough of a buffer so that if things did go wrong that we could fix them and then being able to to solve those challenges when they did come up right uh, this isn't like a problem, right? It's uh, uh, something that happens every single time. Like you've got this design in a, in a computer and then uh, the R&D guys hand it off to the production guys and then they start telling you what's wrong with your design, <laughs> right? Like that's the normal process. <laughs> right. So how long ago did you guys actually start working on XT? Uh, what's the typical development timeline for Shimano for a new group? It's Well, so the, the <clears throat> technology is the thing that kind of gets developed, right? So... Uh, things like Hyperglide Plus and the new brake construction um, and the new derailleur design, the new chain design, the new shift ramp and chain ring tooth design, like those things are all kind of technology based. So for XTR, they'll, uh, they'll get uh, developed. It could be years ahead of time, right? Like uh, they'll figure it out one thing at a time. Like we've got this technology that we think could work and it could be implemented in a new group someday. And so some of it could be even 10 years out and some of it could be two years out. And that's how the XTR group gets made. But for XT, uh, it's not unheard of, but it's rare that there's a new technology that comes out just with the XT group. So for XT, it really is more about uh, uh, spec choices. And so we uh, we make those decisions. Uh, uh, they're finalized about a year before the group ships, so we kind of have the the discussions about it. I don't know, six months before that. So, yeah, we've been working on XT and SLX for about a year and a half. I guess is what my involvement's been. 
Right. Cool. Okay. So I told you, like, for me, I think the most exciting part is the fact that people can actually get it. What about the new XT and SLX groups is the most exciting for you? Like, what one aspect of them? Uh, if it's just one, it's got to be Hyperglide Plus. Like, that's a technology that we've been trying to make happen for such a long time uh, that it's great to not only see uh, see it finally come to light, um, but, uh, and, I mean, to be perfectly frank, when it came out with XTR, like, it seemed like a cool technology and a cool engineering feat to be able to make Hyperglide Plus a thing. And kind of since then... Uh, it takes a, a while to really learn how it can affect your ride out on the trail. And that really has been the coolest thing about it is that uh, um, it's this perfect example of, the, of a direction that we've been pushing for on the mountain bike side for a while, which is to stop focusing on improving the worst parts of mountain biking and to instead focus on improving the best parts of mountain biking. And, and really, like, we're talking about going uphill versus going downhill. And, um, and Hyperglide was sweet technology that came out back in the 80s. Uh, that made shifting to an easier gear way better than it had been before. Um, but uh, but there hasn't really been much change in shifting to uh, uh, a faster gear. So when you're dropping into a trail, you know that there's going to be this clunk, clunk, clunk as you're shifting outward. Um, and uh, we're so used to it, and it feels kind of so smooth that it's such a like a easy transition into Hyperglide Plus where you kind of don't really notice the benefits right away. Like it takes a little bit of getting used to it and you slowly start to realize that you don't need to let up on the pedals anymore when you're accelerating and shifting gears. So, um, there, uh, just over the last couple of days, like I've noticed pedaling out of corners that, uh, you can power manual and pedal and shift at the same time. And the bike's not going to do this little jerk and, uh, and mess the whole thing up, right? Like, uh, it just is so smooth that you can shift whenever you want to. Uh, and that really can help you enjoy your bike more and ride faster. And it, it has an effect on the ride, which is why it has kind of been emerging as the, uh, uh, as the, my favorite thing about the XT group. That's cool. Yeah. And so if you're only listening to this and you haven't read the, the full tech breakdown on bike rumor yet, check it out because we have a video in there that shows, uh, both out on the trail, shifting in both directions, and then in a bike stand, shifting in both directions with a little bit of slow-mo showing how that Hyperglide Plus does kind of keep that chain engaged as you're going down to a smaller cog and a harder gear. It's super cool, so be sure to check that out. So I had a few questions for you, and then we're going to turn it into uh, turn it over to reader questions. The first one is you, I was listening to you tell some other people the other night at dinner about chain lube. I don't know how you guys <laughs> got on that subject, but you had some really interesting thoughts on chain lube, and I was, it was pretty cool. So I was hoping you could kind of retell that story about like, you know, the question was like, hey, what's the best chain lube to use sure. for mountain bikes? Uh, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I come from a mechanics background and I've thought about this an awful lot. Um, too much, maybe <laughs> I, I, I don't know. It feels right to me, <laughs> um, but, uh, well, and I suppose that I should start by saying that the, uh, that the, the grease that comes from the factory on the chains, uh, that is intended to be left on there. That's kind of one of the most common questions that we get. Um, and, uh, and the basic principle, right, is that uh, grease does a better job of reducing friction and lubricating the chain than an oil does, right? And uh, 
but you can't really take your chain apart and grease all the individual pieces and that's why we use something that's liquid to be able to get into where you actually need it but at the factory we can lubricate it before it gets put together and so mm -hmm. the grease is basically it's intended to be put on how um, long does that typically last i mean uh, in terms of mileage for an, an average conditions mountain bike which i know there's no average but well okay well when we're talking about a, a mountain bike and being ridden in dirty conditions then uh yeah it well it does depend on what kind of chain lube you're using um well i just meant still, that factory grease like uh, how long oh but it, i guess it, it has more to do with it, how right? often you have to clean the chain than how mm. long the grease will actually last okay. so um i guess we could start with like an extreme situation that if you were riding a road bike in clean conditions like if you live in southern california something like that where it never rains or you never ride on those few days where it does rain then it's not inconceivable that the grease could last the entire length of the chain um hmm. that there are very few people that that push it that far but uh uh uh, grease is very, very durable, right? So in perfect conditions, that could be the case. So that's kind of our, our baseline. Um, if, uh, if you're riding in off-road conditions, then absolutely I would be applying a chain lube on top of that. Um, but uh, if you're going to apply a lube on top of the factory grease, then it should be, uh, I mean, kind of what the industry knows as a, as a wet lube, but really an oil, right? Like it's the, uh, the same basic... Uh, kind of makeup is the factory grease. So the solvents that are in uh, like a wet chain lube, uh, they can uh, allow the lubricant to mix with the factory grease and everything kind of plays nicely together. But uh, just about every dry lube with one important exception is uh, is not compatible with the factory grease. So if you're going to use uh, a, uh, an actual dry lube, which is uh, Basically, it means that there's a uh, either wax is your lubricant or there's some kind of solid lubricant like PTFE or molybdenum disulfide, and that has to sit in some kind of carrier, and that's usually wax, and those things don't mix well with the factory grease. So in those cases, you've got to completely degrease the chain. Um, if, uh, if you are leaving the factory grease on and using an oil to lubricate your chain, then... Um, yeah, I mean, there's really no need to ever degrease your chain. Like, you kind of just keep the factory grease with a mixture of oil running until the chain needs to be replaced. And, and you're, you're saying with wet lube, you were telling the folks that had asked of that, um, you know, a lot of people put it on and they wait a couple of minutes or an hour or whatever. The instructions say, like for me, it's right. like pretty much you put it on, you wipe it off. Yeah. But like the ideal time to wipe it off is actually right before you ride. Why is that? Right, exactly. Well, so, I mean, the reason that people are wiping it off is because... Uh, yeah, and the instructions that do say that, they're looking to, uh, to keep it clean. And that's kind of, I think, the reason that people gravitate towards dry lubes is that they think that it's cleaner, but a wet lube can actually be really clean as well, uh, as long as you just have it on the inside of the chain and not on the outside of the chain. So if you just wipe it down right before you go ride and you go do that uh, every day, then... Uh, uh, you would end up with a really clean chain lube. And, and there are different weights of wet chain lubes as well. And usually the lighter weight ones are not marketed as wet lubes because they feel like that's kind of like branding suicide. Uh, <laughs> but to me, those are the best wet chain lubes are the ones where you've got uh, multiple different weights so you can tune them for different rides. Uh, so like I'm a Pedro's guy when it comes to wet lube. So you can uh, move around between, uh, uh, I think they've got four different lubes that are 
all technical. I mean, they're in oil, right? So I think only one of them actually says wet lube on the bottle, though, the sin lube one. Um, but they're all interchangeable with each other. So if you're going to go, you know, if it's pouring down rain, then just put on a heavier weight lube and you kind of still just keep wiping it off. Like there's a, a chance that you'll need to uh, uh, clean the bike a little bit more thoroughly after a ride that's that rough, but you don't need to go to the trouble of thoroughly degreasing your chain and getting rid of the lube that's in there. Like the lube that's in there is basically still good. And so just add more of it. That's the right weight for the next one. And you can keep your clean or your chain clean and well lubricated for a really long time. Um, so that's my, my basic philosophy is I like wet lubes. I think that they can run really clean and, uh, and I feel like dry lubes have mostly got kind of a, a weakness that they don't, uh, uh, they don't stand up to harsh conditions that well. So sometimes you can get surprised by a stream crossing, even if you're riding in really dusty conditions and then you go through one stream and the wax is gone or whatever the carrier was that is holding your, your lubricant to the chain. And then you kind of have an unlubricated chain after that. Right. Hmm. Um, you so, mentioned one exception. Do you want to tell us what that is? Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's Dumontech. Um, and, uh, they're fairly well known, right? It's a more expensive lube and they tend to come in really small bottles. And that's, <laughs> that's because you don't really need to use that much of it. And the, the way that that system works is that, uh, it's a liquid that polymerizes under pressure and turns to uh, a solid and coats all of the metal pieces on the inside of the chain. So it is compatible with the factory grease. Like it plays well with the, the mm. factory grease. It'll, it'll like seek out the metal itself and bond to it. Um, and you can't wash it off. Like it's not water soluble. It'll oh, stay on there. I've until gotten it someone wears out. something that wasn't the chain and it did not come off. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, yeah, it's great. So if you want to run a chain completely dry, then that would be the way to do it. Um, but you also like, it's way easier to work with because you don't need to degrease the chain ahead of time. Um, and, uh, and then it kind of, it really plays in with my, uh, wet lube philosophy, um, which is really handy because wet lubes keep a chain nice and quiet. Dumontech tends to do so really well, but, uh, the one thing that's kind of been evolving with drivetrains over the last couple of years is moving towards single front chain rings and really, really wide range cassettes. Um, and of course, because Dumontech polymerizes under pressure and there's not that much pressure between the side plates, then it can be nice to have a little something extra there if you mm -hmm. want to keep the chain uh, as quiet as possible. Um, so of course, a chain stretches because of wear between the pin and the hole in the, the inner plate. Um, and, uh, and that part is all working great but the friction between the the side plates the inner plates and the outer plates as they're rotating against each other that can make some noise if all you've got is a fully degreased chain and demontech on there right so a little wet lube on top of that is uh uh is the way that i loop the chains on my bike cool <laughs> all right uh, let's see i'm pulling up some questions here so we got a ton on facebook and a couple instances so the, uh, and there was a lot of overlap, so I'm, I'm going to summarize because a lot of people had some similar questions. But one I thought was pretty cool was, uh, you know, you guys just introduced GRX Group. And one of the questions was, uh, when are the flat bar shifters coming so that you can kind of mix and match? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I mean, those those components already existed with a flat bar drivetrain, right? Like uh, um, the uh, the cable pull ratio on a very similar derailleur that will shift that cassette like it already exists. The uh, um, 
That in order to kind get, of vague. So, <laughs> so can you mix and match? I mean, you've got an eleven speed, basically an eleven speed road cassette. Granted, with much wider range, can you throw a you know an XT, uh, an eleven speed XT shifter and derailleur on that and have it? Will everything line up right? Okay, yeah. So good point, right? So uh, uh, there is a lot of shared technology between the GRX group and mountain bike groups that we've had in the past, and. In fact, a big part of how we were able to deliver three GRX groups all at the same time was by keeping a lot of the existing technology. So there's no new chains or cassettes, right? Like, that's a big part of it. So uh, those 11-speed cassettes were just the 11-speed cassettes that we've had in our mountain bike line before. Uh, And uh, so if you wanted a a flat bar version, then you could uh, use a derailleur that will shift that cassette that's got a cable pull ratio that matches a mountain bike shifter, which is like an XTR M9000 rear derailleur. So if you were going to run it as a single front chain ring, then that would be a good way to go. If you wanted to use the GRX derailleurs specifically, uh, like if the uh, uh, like the tune of that rear derailleur, uh, you know, the cable pull ratio is different, so it'll be a little bit lighter shifter feel. Uh, and then, of course, it'll match with a front double system, and uh, front double systems seem to be a little bit more popular on gravel bikes. Uh, so it's important to like know that there is an option to use... Uh, the GRX crank, the GRX front derailleur, the GRX rear derailleur, all of that with a single front chain ring system. And we have made flat bar versions of our road shifters with the exact same cable pull ratio as the drop bar shifters for a while. Cool. Um, What's the model name or number for those? Uh, it's like S... Well, there's a 10-speed one, so that's the just a Tiagra flat bar shifter. That would be fully compatible with the GRX 10-speed stuff. The, uh, the 11-speed options... Um, I'm trying to remember, and my apologies because this isn't my product, but I don't know if there's both a 105 level and an Ultegra level, but typically we do throw in a, uh, a flat bar shifter spec uh, for the drop bar groups, and, uh, and those there absolutely is at least one of those guys that exists. So it would be like SLR 7000 or R8000, something like that probably. Okay, cool. So one of the things you guys touched on in the the presentation for XT was, you know, I mean, you're pretty upfront about acknowledging that, you know, from an OEM standpoint, uh, another brand of mountain bike drivetrain has really crushed it lately, and you guys have started losing out on that high end, you know, and, and the the lower end is still there, but that mid and high end, a lot of one by twelve groups are not Shimano, and it's basically, I think, because you guys just have not had something available to put on those bikes at the price point you know the the kind of quality that people would want not quality even but like everybody wanted a one by 12 right um so one of the questions was like what does that feel like for you guys and you know like obviously you're back in the game with the new groups but Uh, i hope so yeah yeah it's you know um yeah well i mean it it feels like you made a a wrong turn down some dirt road a long time ago and you keep waiting for it to let out on the highway and it just isn't gonna right? right like uh um there uh there are kind of technical reasons to defend a, a a front derailleur system you know front double system uh like the driving efficiency is better when you can have a straighter chain line that sort of thing um but uh but of course, those things are not the most important parts of mountain biking, right? Like if, if driving efficiency and rolling resistance were the most important parts of mountain biking, then we'd be running like 1.9 tires on our bikes, right? <laughs> right. Um, like just barely enough to stick to the ground, but faster, right? <laughs> and, uh, and we'd be running 20 millimeter wide rims too, because they'd be lighter. But there are more important things than that. So it, uh, it really, I think, was a, a struggle to 
recognize that that was uh, the direction that mountain biking had been going for a while, and we kind of missed it, right? Um, So, yeah, that was the the hardest part about getting the design was kind of just recognizing that we were focusing on the wrong thing. So now that you guys have, you know, modern 12 speed, one by 12 groups, what's the, what's the prognosis as you know, you were saying that you guys had actually shown this group to OEM buyers and brands last fall. Mm -hmm. Is it, is there a lot of uptake? Like as soon as this launches, are we going to see new bikes coming out with this group spec as um, OEM? Uh, it should be pretty good. Yeah, it's definitely uh, a lot more than it's been in the past. I'll, I'll say that. Uh, there is uh, always timing issues, right? Like uh, being able to ship from our factory in May is still a little bit late. Like if the frames are getting made in March, then it's kind of too long to wait for May. So every time that there's a new group that comes out, like you're going to line up with some people's pr- production cycles and not with others. And so uh, if you don't line up, then you kind of just have to wait for the next model year. Um and, uh, and we're kind of still in the process of doing that with XTR, right? That like, uh, uh, it might still be another year before we get XTR bikes because it didn't line up with somebody's production cycle. Um, and, uh, so that kind of means that, uh, there will be some bikes out there, but, uh, but, uh, there may be <clears throat> a lot of, uh, people needing to build up the bike that they want to for, uh, for this summer, if they want to get a bike right away with XT or SLX or even XTR components, honestly. Right. Cool. The, um, can you name some brands? Like, do you know, can you say which bike brands will have some early models out with the new XT or SLX? That's a good question. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I don't know. It's kind of this, uh, this moving target, uh, there are uh, there are brands that uh, are more flexible than others, and so they tend to not be hampered as much. So uh, a company like Pivot, they are bringing in frames and assembling them in the U.S., so they can switch over to a new kit relatively easily because their uh, their complete bike production is not uh, tied to the uh, the the timing of the components right? right like they could they could change it so there are a couple companies that use a, a model like that um and uh yeah pivot niner yeti santa cruz all of those guys like they've got the flexibility i don't actually know what they've got on order to tell you the truth so um i think uh a lot of like they bike brands they want to be able to deliver XT bikes to customers if uh, if that's what they want to buy. And uh, so they're kind of making this prediction that we think the customers are going to want to buy that, so we want to have at least some kind of option, but they can only push off so many frames, right? So right. Uh, there should be a lot of options out there, and yeah, and then uh, certainly lots of people will be able to upgrade their bikes this year too. Sweet, cool. Okay, so next on the list is uh, new DI2 mountain bike groups. Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, we get that one a good amount too. So uh, it's I mean it's worth mentioning that that uh, XTR and XT Di two from the previous generation haven't been discontinued. We're going to keep selling all of those components. And uh, and for people that like an electronic uh, system, whether it's the user interface or uh, the reliability and robustness of an electronic system shifting system, um, or if they uh, have the Fox IRD system and like the integration, right? Like those things are still reasons to keep supporting and producing that product. Um, but, uh, it never really had that big of a, of a 
market presence and uh, uh, it was very obvious that there needed to be something different about it in order to get to that point, right? Um, the, uh, the thing that, uh, that I'll say kind of from like a, a product manager's point of view is that uh, I've struggled to find the value of electronic shifting um, in, uh, in the new group because there is a, a difference in shifting performance uh, there traditionally has been right, but uh, but now we've got Hyperglide Plus and an electronic version of Hyperglide Plus shifting, like it the difference gets even smaller than it was before. Um, and kind of what we saw and what we heard from riders was that the the difference in shifting performance even from the last generation was so small that it was hard to justify spending more money on an electric shifting system. Um, and uh, and so there really kind of needs to be something else. Like on the on the road bike side, DI two has been really successful for one thing because uh, there's a much bigger difference in front shift quality. And mm-hmm. without yeah. really a front derailleur on a mountain bike, then we lose a lot of the of the shifting performance benefit. Um, and uh, and then the other thing that really helps DI two on the road side is uh, it's lots of different shift point options and then integration with other components. And of course, we don't have different shift points on a mountain bike because you don't move your hands around like you do on a road bike. Um, On a road bike too, a lot of people have got a Garmin sitting out in front of their handlebars all the time. So being able to see their battery life or their gear indication um, or be able to use the buttons on the tops of the DI2 hoods to start and stop the timer or move to uh, a new map screen on your... I say Garmin because that's the popular one in North America, but there are other ones that'll do that kind of thing as right. well. And so there's this really opportunity for for integration that exists on the roadside that kind of just isn't there yet on the mountain bike side, right? Like we see some hints of some companies coming out with electronic seat posts or electronic suspension control. And, uh, and if those things could be integrated into an electronic shifting system, then that's where we really start to get something to offer. Um, but just having an electronic shifting system with, uh, you know, a 12-speed twi- wide-range group with Hyperglide Plus shifting, the difference in performance would be so small that it, it wasn't enough for us to justify. So um, we, uh, we know that some people like it, and that's kind of why we're keeping it around, but there's not going to be a new version until, uh, until we do have those other opportunities to take advantage of on a mountain bike side. So it, we're absolutely still working on it. It absolutely is still going to come back. Um, but, uh, but the continu- or the, uh, the current groups will just continue until we feel like we've got something more to offer. Right on. Cool. Okay. So this one I think is interesting because, you know, you, you just talked about how, you know, if you really wanted the ultimate efficiency, you've got a two by system because the chain lines are going to be better based on what years you're likely to be in. But then, um, this one, is, the guy asks, do you really believe one by is an advantage or an advancement? Uh, it's, I personally do, kind of coming from a North American mountain biker uh, point of view. Um, and there are a couple of like key differences, right? And we got to kind of understand that the, the bike maker is trying to make the best frame that they can so that they can make the best overall riding experience that they can. And they've just plain got more room to work with on the frame uh, when there's only one chain ring to work with, right? So if there's no front derailleur mount, uh, then they can put the, the seat tube and the, and the stays and the pivot points all exactly where they want to without having to compromise stuff. Um, it also really helps to eliminate a pinch point between the, the 
rear tire and the chain rings. And, uh, and that kind of still continues to be a problem, which is why we see things like, uh, super boost coming out, right. That, uh, uh, that there still wasn't enough room with a boost single chain ring system in order to be able to run a 29er with the tires that you might want to run on that bike. So if those are the things that improve the ride quality, like suspension pivot placement and frame stiffness and tire size choice, like if those are the things that make a ride better and a single chain ring helps make those things uh, easier to happen, then of course a bike manufacturer is going to choose a single front chain ring system to make the best overall bike. And that absolutely is is just plain a fact of the matter, right? Yeah. Well, I think the simplicity of it too, you know, for newer riders getting into it, not having to worry about that front shifter. Like I know when I was teaching my kids to ride, there was, you know, still front derailers and there was, it's confusing. It can be, right? Because then you have yeah. to think about the right gear ratio so i think from that standpoint it's uh it's definitely an advantage too all right um so this one is a funny one because it's this is the kind of question every time there's a a change where you have to buy new parts we get these types of questions which is you know it's like oh they're just trying to they're just changing something so we have to buy new parts and sell us more stuff and make more money so this one is give us a timeline for the introduction of 13, 14, and 15 speed systems <laughs> so we can save our money and not waste time uh, until the next change. Uh, well, we have a very predictable product cycle. Like uh, <laughs> yeah. There tends to be new technology introduced every four years. So uh, new technology came out last year, so we're a couple of years away from it at least. Um, <laughs> there, of course, are, are challenges, right? Like we always keep saying that, uh, but if you had to put more gears in there, then, uh, then chains would wear out quicker and, uh, and maybe you'd need more space for the, for the cogs. So they either have to get closer together or we need the, the rear wheel spacing to get wider or the wheel has to get uh, weaker because the hub flanges have to get closer together. Um, so a lot of times in the past is, you know, we've moved from six to seven to eight to nine to 10 to 11 and now 12 speeds. There have been technology improvements that have gotten around like those classic problems, right? So, uh, so we're in a place where we don't have to sacrifice on uh, chain durability or wheel strength. And we've been able to uh, yeah, make thinner chains and cogs and get them to fit into the spaces they've fit in before, uh, dishing the cogs out over the, the, uh, the drive side flange of the hub is a handy little trick too. And it only works when the cogs are of a certain size. So that was pretty handy. So we kind of have done a good job of maintaining performance and durability as we've added cog to the cassette. But of course there's a point where it's just not going to work anymore. Um, I, uh, I think that when we get to 12 speeds, we're getting pretty close to, uh, acceptable compromises. Uh, you can still see some evidence that there are some compromises, right? That if we had uh, the perfect size gear steps between every cog and we had 12 gears and we started with a 10 tooth cog, we'd end up with a 1045 cassette. And that's why we make that. But that doesn't seem to be enough range for a lot of riders like myself riding in Orange County included, because we have a lot of trails that just climb for a really long time before you get to turn around and start coming down. Um, so, uh, so I think that we could make some really smart decisions about what those uh, uh, bigger gear steps are and where we place them in order to get a good riding experience. But uh, it really would, I think, take uh, um, more gears to be able to have absolutely zero compromises. And that's, that's still just for a certain kind of rider, right? Like uh, 
um, the guy who can be satisfied with the 1045 is either somebody who prioritizes the gear steps above all else. And so, uh, so maybe he'll give up a gear on the high end or the low end. Uh, we know that people typically build their bike around the, uh, the easiest gear on the drivetrain. Like that's not something that you kind of should compromise on, but I think a lot of people actually, uh, are more than happy to compromise on the high end side. Right. So if, uh, if you could make a, a 1045 cassette work, like I think I could make it work in Orange County with a 28 tooth chain ring and a 2810 tall gear is actually kind of fine because I can pedal that thing up, I don't know, 22, 23 miles an hour. And uh, I certainly would get spun out on the road, but it's a mountain bike and that kind of can be okay. So if that allows me to have perfectly even gear steps and a short cage derailleur that's going to bounce around less and, uh, and actually a lighter bike, then those could be the right answer. Um, it's, uh, you know, I throw that out as a hypothetical, like I, that's not the choice that I made with my <laughs> bike. Like I like having the 1051 and I like pedaling just a little bit faster on the road, but, uh, about the only time I use that 10 tooth cog is when I am pedaling on the road. So it, there are still some compromises in drivetrains. Um, I, uh, I think it remains to be seen, right? Like we'll see what the market feedback continues to evolve like over the, the next couple of years and see if people feel like they're compromising on their drivetrain right now. And if they need more gears, um, I kind of feel like we're in a pretty good place right now. It's, yeah. It's hard to predict what's going to happen in just a couple of years. That's true. Right? Of course, I said that, you know, when 11 Speed came out, it was like, man, this is so good. Like, what more do you need, right? But, you know, it's it's funny. Once there is something better and you realize how good it is and you're like, oh, yeah, I, I, I totally need that. Which is funny. So one of the next questions, this guy had a million questions, so I'm going to pick one because it yeah. kind of <laughs> like reverts reverses what we were just talking about is you know like why can't you just accept that people want wide ratio one by ten and one by nine drive trains <laughs> which i think i want to see if i can answer this because i know one okay. of shimano's big uh things that they really push is you know good gear steps you know which means basically like how many teeth are you going when you jump from one cog to the next and you know especially at the smaller end of it you know the smaller gears for harder it's like when you, if you wanted to jump from a 10 to a 13 that's huge because of percentages right when you get up mm. to like jumping from a 45 to a 51 it's a much smaller percentage and it's not as noticeable but so for me to get that really wide range with you know a 45 or 50 tooth cog in a nine speed system you're gonna have some really jumpy shifts you would um yeah that's a uh that's a very astute question though what, what was that guy's name uh, David Eads. David Eads. All right. Well, that is that is a very product manager kind of question, um, and uh, I think he's kind of on the right track too, right? Like uh, I think uh, uh, you could make a pretty good argument that uh, that right now we're putting mountain bikers in a situation where their first bike has a front derailleur and they have to learn this thing, um, but they've got these perfectly even gear steps, but the complication and sacrifice and performance of a of a front derailleur, right? Like. Uh, most uh, entry-level aluminum full suspension bikes, like you can't get that big of a rear tire on them, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that they have a front derailleur on them, mm. right? Um, and so if we could make that bike handle better with a single front chain ring system and the sacrifice was bigger gear steps, then that means that that customer would be graduating from big gear steps to small gear steps, and that makes way more sense than graduating to be able to get rid of a front derailleur. Like, that kind of seems weird to me. So... Right. Um, well, see, that's uh, a, I like your perspective on that because I was just thinking like, you know, we've got in a, um, I, it's like Microshift, I think, um, 
you know, it's a wide range one by nine and it actually shifts pretty good. You know, I put it on like my kind of like city speed bike, you know, just for running errands around town, you know, for that, it's great on the mountain bike. I think I would miss some of that, like fine, finer steps between gears when I'm really trying to get my cadence right. But yeah, that makes a lot of sense to go on the lower end and get people used to that simple, simpler function and help them just learn rear shifting. That's a good yeah, yeah. Well, and easier said than done, too, and totally unproven theory. Like, I don't know if a bike would be rideable at all if it had big jumps between the gears, right? Like, that doesn't exist yet. So, um, I mean, it we're, it's well, just Shimano doesn't make it. <laughs> but. A nine speed 1051, uh, something was, like I that? I think it was like an 1142 or 1146. Right, like, right. So that's baby steps. You know, but yeah. yeah, we're talking about the same range because, of, of course, right? Like, uh, um, a big part of the reason why those bikes do have front derailleurs on them, um, and this is actually, you know, a more complete answer to that question, I think, is that uh, uh, a lot of uh, bikes that come with nine-speed drivetrains are used both for mountain biking and for transportation, right? So, um, so the need for a, a higher gear is really there, right? Like, uh, um, we're not running thirty-six tooth chain rings on our uh, like aggressive trail bikes, but uh, that guy who's both using it to ride around town, go to the grocery store, ride to work occasionally. Um, you know, maybe that's his justification for spending money on a, on a mountain bike is that he's going to use it for more than one thing. So it's got to have a low enough gear for mountain biking and it's got to have a high enough gear for getting around town. So really in order for that bike to be able to still function that way, it has to have a wider range cassette than what is currently available. Um, and so that means that the gear steps need to be bigger. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, what it's unproven if those things are all acceptable or not right and uh and it's a very difficult thing to engineer too right that if we start putting bigger jumps on the cassette then uh shift ramps would need to maybe fundamentally work differently like it's a Mm. it's a huge engineering challenge and it might not be possible but uh um but it's good to kind of talk about just the the needs that different riders have so absolutely i mean we're open to all kinds of new ideas and uh that's why we always investigate new concepts and new products and stuff like that. Yeah. Right on. All right, so I know we're coming up on dinner time. I just there's two more that I think are super cool, yeah. and you can answer them really quick if you want, because uh, there is some e-bike stuff. So we'll have to do a follow-up on e-bike because there's, mm-hmm. there were a lot of questions about that stuff, and you guys do have a very popular system. But the last two for mechanical, normal, analog, non-e-bike stuff is uh, I like acoustic. Yeah, acoustic. <laughs> yes, I like that one too. Why don't you make oval chain rings? <laughs> man i i ask the same question and i feel like uh i feel like there's a benefit i've i've tried them out um a lot of it has to do with what can be sold as oem spec and uh and it man it sure feels like people don't want to do biopace again around shimano right, like, yeah we already to. did it and it didn't work out so we just had it not willing to try. we sure did man <laughs> and we did it with a shifting system so uh yeah it's a continual conversation but uh i think you know one of the great things about mountain bikes is that uh is that there are a lot of companies that are willing to make the options that people want and i'm super stoked that those kinds of companies exist and they make products that work with our products so that uh so that people can get the the drivetrains that they want right right on okay so the last one will you ever do a six bolt freezer rotor (laughs) i mean never say never um are there some uh, technical limica- limitations to getting, you know, because the, well, the center bolt section in the middle is pretty big, but six bolt, you know, you've got to have room for the 
all six bolts, does it create space limitations in putting those aluminum fins down inside? Uh, yes. It would, uh, if we made the same rotor with two different carriers in the middle, a center lock one and a six bolt one, then, uh, then we would need to compromise on the design in order to be able to get those two different carriers on there. And, uh, so we really focused on making the best rotor that we could uh, with uh, new XTR and XT Frieza rotors, and uh, and they were made in a in a center lock design, right? And that's uh, that's our technology, and we are proud to support it and kind of prioritize it. Uh, in order to make a six bolt version, it would need to be a totally different rotor design, and uh, we kind of just don't have enough resources at the moment. So it's. Uh, uh, never say never. Like it's it's actually something that we would like to see happen, but uh, but it's not on the on the near horizon, right? Like we uh, we do have to make a lot of tough choices about what products we're gonna make, and that's not one that's gonna make the cut this year. <laughs> right on. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. This was awesome. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Man, so I'll tell you, my favorite part about that was it really at the very beginning when Nick said, you know, Shimano develops technologies first and maybe they develop them without any particular product in mind they just develop a cool technology and then when the time is right to introduce that into a group or a part that's what they do and so you know like I remember when I went to the XTR launch um, it was not so much a ride launch as it was just a factory tour and they showed us a lot of that development work and these things like the new hollow bonded cranks that unfortunately became kind of that delay point in the whole XTR group but just that was a completely new manufacturing method for them. It was a new construction method. And they were really trying a lot of new things with that group. And that's just, to me, that's, you know, maybe it didn't all work out. And we'll talk a little bit about the Silence Hubs as one of those examples. But it's just cool that they're pushing the boundaries and trying new stuff. Yeah, absolutely. What was your favorite part? Uh, the loom part. Right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, the, to me, of course, product is... Someone interesting. I don't know. I'm, <laughs> I'm the Luddite. Yeah. But we all need to keep our chains running smooth. And yeah, that, that yeah, lube stuff, man. That. Like, I, I guarantee you, everybody I know, you know, you, you put it on a little bit of lube, maybe you follow the instructions and wipe it off an hour later and then you let it sit overnight and then you go for a ride. But man, like, yeah, just put it on and wipe it off right before you ride and you're good to go. And even just the talking points that I have as a shop owner with people about the different lubes and just hearing someone either reiterate it or say something a little different and you're like ah yeah i don't know <laughs> i like that yeah cool but, um one thing you didn't address was the whole uh micro spine right thing. what about it what's your issue <laughs> well as we're talking about the luddite thing uh that that they don't have a one speed a single speed version of uh, micro kind spine of, yet there's <laughs> like a that's a thing so it but not only that um there's a whole issue now with some companies not getting the license to use microspline. Yeah, and I think that's if if there's any issue with XT and SLX adoption, it's going to be that, right? There are some hub manufacturers, some third-party ones that are have access to it. You know, DT Swiss probably being the biggest. And honestly, there's a lot of wheels that are built on DT hubs. But yeah, getting more bikes running these groups is going to it's going to be dependent on getting more Absolutely. and more hub brands the opportunity to make a microspline free body because you need it with this group and you know it's kind of like xd right like when you once you start using 
XD, XDR, or MicroSpine, you realize like, God, this is just such a better design than the original, you know, free hub where you have to line up the cassette splines and put on different cogs. And it was, it's one of those things where like, obviously it was an evolution to get to this point because it's like so many other things that we ride. Like it starts one way and we're, we figure out a way to make one thing work on existing parts and then another thing and another thing and another thing. And eventually you realize that like, okay, we just kind of need to reinvent this now. It's been 30, 40, yeah. 100 years. It, it kind of doesn't work so well anymore. But yeah, I, definitely. You know, the other thing he didn't talk about is the pricing issue. And so when I sent out a call for questions, that was of course one of the questions we got about like their, their wholesale pricing and, and how that's changed. And so um, this is one of those things that Nick really can't talk about. It's not his department. He doesn't, you know, like if, if he answers, it's going to be party line, which is fine. It's, it's not in any remote way, shape, or form his part of the company. But I did talk to some other people at Shimano while we were out there. And, you know, like so about a year or so ago, I think, they kind of started shutting down what Chain Reaction was doing by um, being able to sell into the U.S. They put some restrictions on that. And I don't know all the details, but, you know, people find a way around that. And, like, as you see as a shop owner, you know, like, people can still get parts cheaper than you can, right? Right, and that's, I mean, that's where the issue is. It's almost a non-issue except for on the retail side of it. I mean, if Shimano is selling direct, they can kind of make their price whatever. But the question is... Why can a consumer buy it for less than a shop right. can buy it? So how does that even work? Um, so, yeah, my question with regards to the new stuff is, will we see any of that? I mean, will that be an issue at all where there's a posted MSRP of three ninety nine or for whatever, and uh, it's available online for two ninety nine, and my cost <laughs> is three nineteen. Right. Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know the answer to that, but I think you probably will see some discounting, and there's a couple reasons. So I, I kind of started piecing it together. I talked to more and more people um, from Shimano while I was there, and, and there's, you know, when you kind of look at it, so Shimano North America gets take, probably takes the brunt of it from U.S. dealers because, you know, obviously that's who they deal with. You know, Shimano as a whole gets, I think, punished in the comments for these pricing practices, but what I came to find out was it's maybe, you know, like, yeah, there's probably something they could do if they really absolutely clamped down on everything, but the problem is it's almost like that uh, th that Star Wars quote, right? Like, the tighter you squeeze your fist, the more star systems will slip through your grasp or something like that. <laughs> and it's kind of like you can do that, but there's people, these retailers, online retailers or whoever, are going to continue to find ways to get parts for cheaper than they should maybe or they're just going to sell it for almost no profit and use it as a loss leader right and so that one you can't do anything about because you can't you can have map in the u.s where you say well you can't advertise it for less than x but they can't say you can't sell it for less than x well i i think the answer to that is you potentially control who you sell to and that happened once before where they cut out x amount of distributors who were notorious for that practice right they were blowing out their inventory at you know whatever cents on the dollar <laughs> my nomenclature but for very little right um is it 
it seems to me though, you know, the stories I hear, it's not really a distributor problem anymore. Is it's well, not a, anymore. it's an online retailer and it problem. Was, and it is. And those those companies have so many different ways of getting the product, right? Like so, the way the story I heard with Chain Reaction was they had a house brand bicycle brand, and so they would order un you know Shimano parts not in retail packaging, so they get them for a lower price, and then they get them also for like the below wholesale below shop wholesale price because they're putting on a bike that's then theoretically going to go out and be sold at wholesale so there's lower levels of pricing for parts going on a bike as oem spec well let's say they air quotes here accidentally ordered more than they needed to build the bikes that they had so now they have this glut of inventory that they got for super cheap so they can sell it for super cheap so that's that's one way around it and then you know, like even if you control one, let's just, you know, like uh, Nick mentioned a number of brands, Santa Cruz and Niner and Pivot and all these brands. So let's say each of those brands ordered, you know, if they sell, I'm just totally making up numbers. If they sell 5,000 bikes a year, let's say they anticipated a thousand of those would be XT equipped bike. And then maybe they only sold 900. Well, now each of those five companies has a hundred extra sets of XT that maybe it was the XT11 speed, well now the new 12 speed's out. What am I gonna do with 11 speed? I can't sell it on a bike anymore. So maybe they call somebody like Jensen or a competitive cyclist or you know whoever and offer it to those guys for a deal. Now all of a sudden these online retailers have this group that they got a smoking deal on and they blow it out for a smoking deal. And it's I totally like, get that side of it. Yeah. I mean, of course, I mean, as a shop, I see that kind of thing all the time. I've got a 2017 bike <laughs> that should retail for this, but there's no way I'm even going to make cost on it at this point. Right. So I'm going to blow it out for whatever I can to just get it moving. Yeah. So, yeah, but, I get that, but but I, how does Shimano control something like that? Right? Like you're talking about, you know, a very small quantity of parts that's potentially untrackable at, by the time it gets to an online retailer, um, and then of course there's the you know, let, let's just say Jensen or competitive cyclists or anybody. I don't want to pick on any one particular reseller. Um, let's say they buy a part for, like you said, say your cost is three nineteen. Well, you know, you need to keep the lights on, and you're probably only selling a couple of these. Maybe you have to sell it for like three eighty nine or three ninety nine. Jensen's probably going to sell a few hundred or thousand. They can sell it for three twenty nine, right. right? And that that's capitalist system. That's what it is. The question is more. For me, at least, it looks like shops would be punished because yeah. we can't buy it for that unless we go on the same avenues and then. Oh. Yeah, but what shop is going to buy a hundred extra well, no, XT exactly. eleven-speed units? That's, right. I'm saying more. If, like he, one of the things he talked about was maintaining the value of the brand, and that's a tricky question because if they want to maintain the value of the brand, they cannot allow that to happen because the reality is the new msrp is whatever it's being sold for online yeah then whatever this other price that they have on their website is just a mythical number <laughs> that's just made up like that's not the number nobody's selling it for that so to maintain value what's their what's their bottom line number yeah. and then you know as a shop we just have to make a decision like do we want to support it or not and, and of course i have xd brakes on my bike so i'm still <laughs> supporting it right. god damn it <laughs> yeah, yeah it's tough man because i don't you know like it, it, just to reiterate you know you can't you can't tell people what they can sell it for so unless you I, I think you know there's ways maybe around it where shops would get a rebate 
from Shimano off every unit they sell at whatever price. And that helps them a little bit. You know, like, I feel like car dealerships do that. You know, you can look up an invoice of a new car, invoice price to the dealer of a new car and go in. And like the last couple of new cars I've bought, which has been a long time, I'd literally walk in there and tell them, I'll pay you this and it's invoice price. And then I know they're technically not making any money, but then, you know, if it's a Toyota, Toyota gives them a kickback off of every model sold. Yeah, car business is another... No, I know, I know, but I'm just, I'm using it as an example, right? Like, let's say you sold those Shimano parts at Invoice, you know, and then you send Shimano a monthly recap of all the parts you sold, and they say, okay, great job, Watts. Potential, man. I don't know. I'm you just... sold five XT derailers. Yeah. A big deal, buddy. You get $50. <laughs> yeah, big deal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what the answer is. I just know what my goddamn grievances are. Right. Yeah. And I'm going to so always. That's always the reality. <laughs> What else do you want to talk about? That's, uh, you know, like, I think there was so much in that, and I really appreciate that Nick just yeah, talked to to so us. candidly about what they're doing. It's pretty cool. It's yeah. really refreshing. Thanks, Nick. Yeah, thanks, man. Thanks for tuning in, y'all. If you like what you hear, hit subscribe, and we will see you next time. Yeah. Wait, we'll see you. We'll hear you next time. Whatever. That's a wrap on this episode. Tune in next time for another great ride. Be sure to follow at BikeRumor on your favorite social media and hit like and subscribe or leave a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks, and we will see you next time.